Evil 1-1, we have a visual on your position. We have enemy movement 300 meters to your south. Enemy troops in the open. Small arms and RPGs, you are clear to engage. Roger, Evil CP, we are TIC. I say again, we are troops in contact, requesting air support. Stand by for call for fire. Solid copy. Troops in contact. Be advised, air is red at this time. Repeat, air is a no-go. You're on your own. Dig in and give them hell. Give them hell. Give them hell. Welcome to the Dogs of War. Hosted by Stephen Houston. Hello, friends and fans. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Joint Forces Canine Group out of Siloam Springs, Arkansas. Stay tuned for their full commercial play uh, sometime during the episode. But uh, yeah, podcast is also brought to you by Alpine Arms. Alpine Arms is a badass gun store. It's veteran owned and operated and uh, all of their instructors come from the military special operations community and law enforcement special units. They got a sick ass pro shop, bunch of silencers, uh, awesome guns, rifle, anything and everything you could want. Tactically, you know, they sell night vision, they sell, you know, illuminators, NVG illuminators, you name it, they got it. Check them out at alpinearms.com or in person at 50 Chambers Ave in Eagle, Colorado. All right. Got to sit down with a very special guest today. Unfortunately, we had to cut this short as we recorded this during a lunch break at a seminar, and I didn't want to be a that guy. There was a bunch of other people there that paid to attend, so we are definitely going to do a part two sometime in the very near future. But uh, yeah, my guest today is Justin Rigney. He is the owner of Canine Services Unlimited. He's a gold Napopo graduate, and he's been working with dogs from some form or fashion for about over 30 years, and he was a uh, law enforcement officer down in Florida for close to two decades, I believe, give or take. He was a canine handler. We talked dogs. He talked how he got started. Um, don't really get into too much theory, but uh, we also talk about a, his uh, shooting, a critical incident that happened uh, when he was a canine officer. So yeah, stay tuned, and uh, welcome Justin Rigney to the show. Let's go. From basic to advanced training, Joint Forces Canine offers Arkansas's best dog training services. Whether you want to get your pet up to speed on basic obedience or are looking for more advanced training such as specific odor detection, personal protection, competition and trial prep, service dog training, and more, the professionals at Joint Forces Canine will help your dog become the best that it can be. Joint Forces Canine is veteran-owned and offers all levels of training for pets and working dogs on their 20-acre dog training facility which includes kennels, an indoor training arena, a pro shop, technical ponds, a trial field, and an agility course. Contact us today for more information and a free evaluation. You can also learn about our boarding, grooming, and working dog sales. Joint Forces Canine, www.jointforcescanine.com or call 479-802-0775. Jointforcescanine.com, 479-802-0775. All right, I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, bald-headed, boot-wearing, dog-training phenom, Justin Rigney. How are you? I think you got the wrong guy, man. <laughs> you got the right guy, wrong description, man. So. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, glad to have you. Thanks for taking the time out and doing this, for sure. I know we're at, we're at a seminar at uh, Joint Forces in Arkansas, so we're on our lunch break. It's awkward looking at it. Have you ever done these in person? Um, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes it's weird. I think the hardest thing is when you're sitting by yourself trying to talk into a camera, have a conversation with I get, a camera. I'm used to it now, I guess, because yeah. the most of my, I've only done like three out of the almost 50 now uh, remotely. So, all right, I got a good question here for you. I heard you're a bougie bitch, self-proclaimed. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, it may look like a mountain Muppet from Tennessee, man, but I, I like my gym. I like my Starbucks and, you know, I like my... <laughs> Yeah, I, I would never make it in uh, in uh, Survivor, that TV show, man. I'd be booted off immediately. I don't think I could either, unless I was getting paid to be there. Yep. Maybe we could make it work. But. I want to I wanna go to the gym, have my coffee, see my wife every night, man. So Absolutely. <laughs> I hear you on that. All right, before we get into the dog talk, um, uh, in your intro during the seminar, you said you were a baseball player on a professional level. Could you kind of expound on that? Yeah, it's uh, once upon a time, man. It seems like a lifetime ago. I... Uh, I'm a type of person, man, when I, when I get into something, it's an obsession, it's an addiction. And baseball was one of my early ones, man. So 
just obsessed with as a kid, you know, playing T-ball and little league and stuff like that. And, uh, was always able to throw the ball pretty good and hit pretty good. You know, they have all the tools they look for as a professional. They want to be able to throw and hit and run and have good defense. So, you know, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I could, I could hit with most folks. I could, I could throw with most folks, but I'm fucking run like a turtle. My glove <laughs> sucked, you know? So I had limitations and I, you and I were talking at lunch, like I'm ambidextrous, but like equally as shitty with both hands. So, you know, I threw left, but I batted right. Like where do you fucking put that person? Right. This is limited. <laughs> and so I could throw 90 miles an hour. I'm left-handed, so I could throw 90 miles an hour for a couple innings. Um, I'm not built for that long game. So it was a little bit of a fluke, man. I, uh, I was playing at Florida State University, got a scholarship there, and uh, banged heads with the coach, man. Didn't, didn't get along with the system and uh, bounced, went to Tallahassee Community College. And while I was at Florida State, uh, one of the pitching coaches was a guy named Laser Colazzo and a super guy. He came, actually came up from the University of Miami. And uh, him and I clicked, man. They're just a super good dude. He lasted a year or two at FSU and then went back to Miami. And uh, he, when he knew that I left to go to Tallahassee, we were talking, man. So long story short, I ended up getting a, a scholarship to the University of Miami when I went to Tallahassee Community College. And then I was about, I was 21 at the time, which is old for a baseball player. So uh, my grades sucked. I, uh, I cheated my way through <laughs> high school. I have a documented learning disability, man. I cannot retain anything I read. Math is just as bad. If I can put my hands on it and absorb it and put it into motion, I can, I can retain it. But reading, I suck. I absolutely suck. So long story short, my grades suck, man. I was like two-tenths of a grade point percentage below um, getting that 2.0 where I needed to play. I needed in order to go on to the University of Miami. And this summer, it was a ghost town. Guys are playing in Cape Cod or Alaska summer leagues, and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. Well, the Detroit Tigers had drafted me or were talking to my father. They were in the 20th round. My dad said, you know, as an outfielder and they said pass he's going to university of miami then i got my grades back and I'm like oh shit and the braves ended up drafting me in the 44th round as a left-handed pitcher i just could throw some gas for a little bit so jumped on that it was one of the things i regret is not just sitting out getting my grades right and then finishing my degree at um it made it made it taking a different course i'm i'm blessed with the direction my life took but if there was one thing i could change would be go to university of miami so anyway Played about a year and a half with the Braves. My elbow could not fucking withstand it, and they, they released me. It's the only job I've ever been fired from. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Atlanta Braves, man. What uh, circa was that? Was that like Chipper Jones era? It was. It was, it was man. Nice. So um, I, you know, my roommate or my guy next door to me, a locker was a guy named Jermaine Dye. I, I don't think he's uh, he's retired now. You know, I'm almost fifty, but uh, top top pro ball player. Chipper Jones was the man back then. Um, you had all the left-handers. So, I, you know, if I had the potential to go to the top, I wasn't going anywhere because you had Tom Gladden. I, I forget the names, bro. It's been a yeah. lifetime. But they, they were stacked left-handed pitchers throughout the organization. So I wasn't going anywhere, man. I played uh, t-ball through high school. And I did some pitching, did some catching. Yep. And then, uh, well, early on, so I was in double A. It was like the Florida, um, I forget what they call it, the Pop Warner Leagues or mm -hmm. something. I was on uh, double A, but I was a big kid and, uh, you know, I was a little bit competition wise above my peer group. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I wanted to skip triple A and go to the, the majors in the little league. My dad said, don't do it. Mm -hmm. you know, those kids are bigger, faster than you. You're not, you're not going to throw fast enough. You're going to get put in the outfield. And I was like, eh, I know better. And I did it. Yeah. And I got put in the fucking outfield. <laughs> <laughs> the coach's kid was the uh, pitcher uh -huh. and he was awful. But uh, that coach played for the Padres professionally mm. and butted heads and uh, kind of lost interest. But then in the school, the school teams was different. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit different, but. And it's, we, we could draw a lot of connections from my experience in dogs with, with growing up you know, being an athlete. And we, we know the repetition's the mother of skill. And I was addicted to it, man. Like kids would go out on the weekends and party. I was fucking home just working on drills, man. Like I had an eccentric uh, coach in high school. He was batshit fucking crazy. <laughs> the parents thought he was a looney tune. And to some degree he was. But his brain worked in another way where he would dissect the mechanics of pitching and hitting and fielding down to absolute tiny micro behaviors. And I'm talking about when the bat's coming through the strike zone to get the most leverage and bat speed, how to put pressure in your toes <laughs> to leverage against uh, your wrists and the bat, it's kinesiology. And, and the, the dissecting of exercises and compartmentalization of a range of motion, I absolutely dedicate that to dog training as well. Nice. Yeah, I, I've seen some videos of like, like new age uh, techniques and they have like bands on their arms. And yeah. doing, we didn't have any of that. None like of that, we, we just, it was like, you get up, you, take your hits run yep. around the bases 
And I mean, I wish I would have had a little bit more of that type of sure. training because I could, I was talented at it and, mm. you know, um, kind of lost interest just because of the, you know, the skill level and, you know, I, I, did, I didn't really see it going anywhere, but yeah. with proper coaching nowadays, could you imagine going through now? For sure. Crazy. For sure. It's on another level. And it's, you look at successive approximation, a term we use in dog training quite a bit, rewarding the small good intentions of a behavior because <clears> you're <throat> chunking and you're dissecting behaviors down to small components, linking them together and re individually rewarding those behaviors as we link them and, and build the total behavior it's exactly what you're saying. We would swing for the fucking fences in one range of motion. We weren't dissecting and breaking down mechanics into small pieces. And for me, that was, I learned that early. And it's That's such a good point to, to, and a good collaboration to, to understand it in the dog training sense, sure. and, which is why we're here at the seminar. But um, when, when in life did you know, like, Hey, this is, this is my passion. Now the dog thing, when, where yeah. did that happen? It's a kind of a weird story, man. I've, I've told it sometimes, but I, I'm so grateful for my life experiences, but my, my early start in life was pretty shitty, man. I grew up with addiction, with abuse, with violence, and total chaos, born into it. Actually, my, my indoctrination to this world was in utero. My old man punted my mom down the stairs when she was pregnant with me, so it was just fucking madness growing up. So early on, my interpretation of people that they were dangerous and untrustworthy, but I had a natural gravitation towards animals, like God put it on my heart to, to connect with animals. And believe it or not, my first love was horses, you know, crazy, crazy about horses. And, uh, you know, transitioned to dogs kind of in my early teens. And uh, it's just been an absolute obsession. And, uh, you know, growing up and having the opportunities to work with animals and stuff like that was, was key. So fast forward the tape till I was probably like 13 or 14. We had adopted an all-black German Shepherd. And uh, poor dude had got waffled by a car and the owner couldn't afford the vet bills. So the vet adopted him, did the surgery, then, then readopted him to us. And he was the coolest dog, bro. He was a hundred pound, big, big animal, but he was on absolute autopilot for like two weeks, man. Perfect dog, chilling like he'd lived with us his whole life. And like two or three o'clock in the morning one night, man, he starts going fucking ballistic, like doing the best fucking alert on a door like you think he's a police dog, you know, going <laughs> crazy. So we just thought maybe there's some animal outside or something. He's going bonkers. We lived in an area where there wasn't much foot traffic. So we're like, eh, whatever. Hushed him up, went to bed. Next morning, walked outside and discovered my dad's two outboard motors on his boat were gone. Someone had fucking stolen him, stolen them. And that moment, you know, sparked something in me and it, it took me years to look back on life and that changed my direction. You know, you're a kid, you're stupid. You don't know what the fuck you're doing, but two things happened. Number one, it, it sparked in my brain that I will never not listen to an animal again, a dog. I'll never not listen to a dog. They're speaking to us. They're telling us the story. We just have to have the knowledge and understanding how to speak their language. So right there, I'm like, man, I'm never, they're not just these blobs walking around the earth. They're fucking, they understand they're way more smarter than we are. So, and the other caveat to that was becoming a victim of a crime, bro. That fucking enraged me, bro. That taps into something like, uh, like violated, a, bro. Oof, man, it made me pissed, man. So fast forward the tape, um, being able to bring the people to justice with a dog as a cop, man, was it was very fulfilling. <laughs> it, it 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 soothed that fucking fury. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. I just like the violation. So people that steal and lie, dude. That's like the two. I can't, I can't yeah. handle it. And, and I can definitely relate on some, if my dog doesn't trust somebody, it's for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Um, yeah. So you just touched on, uh, law enforcement. Um, how did you, I mean, when did you make your mind up for that and, and why? And then how did you put that into motion? Right on, man. So when I got released from the Braves, it was in, uh, 94, 95, man. It's again, lifetime ago. That's, that's definitely the era of that team. The, the whole time, that um, I'm playing ball, like I have this weird void. Because I couldn't have a dog, you know, minor leagues, mm. making shit money, living in hotels and buses and shit like that. So the whole fucking time, and I'm like, I have that void. As soon as I get released, you know, I'm fucking driving around. I was actually down in South Florida. I was in West Palm where I was stationed, man. I'm literally driving around. My parents were about to get on a fucking plane from New York and come watch spring training. They were literally on the way to the, to the airport. I'm like, uh, make a U-turn. I just got cut. So I'm driving in circles in West Palm, not, not knowing where the fuck I'm going to go. But I'm down. I had this unsaturated, unquenched thirst, bro, to have a fucking dog. Like I wanted to get into it. So, you know, found my way back into Connecticut where I, I grew up and I was going through some delis and work, we're working in construction, going back to school at night. And uh, we'd stop in these delis and I would see a guy's business card. Now, again, this is a lot of long time ago, no social media. 
none of that. So it was old school. We call guerrilla marketing guys putting their business cards up. So anyway, it was a, a business called Dogs Unlimited. A guy that owned it was named Chris Byrne, who's one of my dearest friends today. I uh, called him. I said, hey, man, I'm, I have this real deep interest in understanding dogs. He said, come on out. And it's that early relationship that kind of established in my mind where I have a very deep, uh, compelling kind of force to pay it forward. Because Chris opened his mind, his business, his, his home, his heart, like everything to me. Didn't even know me, bro. He just saw the spark. He just saw the, the fire. And from that point on, he, you know, I worked off learning kennel management, doing puppy classes. I was uh, actually running a guard dog service, man. My very first experience in dogs was dealing with asshole dogs, dropping them off at a construction site or a car lot at night. Or sometimes we had kennels on site, like luring them back in the kennel, slamming the fucking door and getting out of there before we get tagged. So that early experience with, with aggressive dogs was crucial. But I really learned dogs A to Z with Chris. And uh, he, he opened his mind, and like I said, his life. But he also introduced me to some extremely talented people. And back in New England in the day, back in the mid-90s, there were a powerhouse in Schutzen. Like they were putting up big numbers with bringing back all kinds of hardware. And those are the folks he met. He introduced me to a guy named John Rodriguez, another guy named John Sequino. And uh, they were with open arms, man. They taught me decoying, taught me IGP. And um, just it, decoying for me was a natural progression, you know, coming out of a professional athlete world. And then just seeing the camaraderie, the interaction with the dog, the athleticism of being a decoy and the, the, the rush, it's hooked, man. So, again, I got to experience a lot of stuff and some very, very strong dogs, man. Back in the mid-90s, they were fucking monsters. You know, they're out there today, but few, a lot fewer and far between. So, not only did I have extremely talented people coaching me, I had monsters to work on that I couldn't break. So, there was no, 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 rest, no risk there. One of the gentlemen that was in the club... A guy named Bill Scribner, he's an IGP competitor, but he's also a cop. And he ran the Connecticut Police Work Dog Association um, up in Connecticut. And uh, so he saw, you know, my spark, my fire, my desire. He's like, hey, come on out to, to proficiency training every week. So whether I think it was Wednesdays back then, he, I'd put on the suit and we'd start decoying and put into motion. I ended up, you know, decoying some Napa Wada certifications. And then just hearing the war stories, man, the bailouts, the dog bites, the tracks. I'm like, fuck, bro, that's for me. Like back in the day, we didn't have these smartphones or Polaroid pictures. So I'd see the Polaroid pictures of the dog bites, man. I'm like, fuck. And of course, the whole camaraderie back then, man, law enforcement's way different now, but the camaraderie was deep. And I missed that from team sports. So it fulfilled a lot of voids for me. And uh, then I, the pursuit was full on. When I, again, when I get into some shit, I'm about it. So back in Connecticut, um, now we're going to about 1999, started dropping applications for departments up in Connecticut, and you would have two or three cats going for one job, you know, and that job was already signed, sealed, delivered for the chief's kid kind of shit. So there was no movement. Um, so again, I'm still training IGP, doing pet dogs, all kinds of stuff with Chris. A guy named Phil Holscher, he used to come up to Connecticut twice a year to do an, a Schutzen seminar, and he's the godfather of Schutzen in this country. Like, he really developed it. I mean, there's several several key players, but... He's one of the main ones. And he kind of saw that spark in me too, man. So he'd come up and he'd ask me to do things. I'd put it into motion for him. And he's like, if you ever want to come to South Florida, you got a spot. And I was actually just about to buy a property in Connecticut to start my dog training business. And the dude had lied about the, the zone lot line. And I found out by going to town hall and, and that deal fell through. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck, fuck Connecticut, bro. It's cold as fuck. It's expensive as fuck. And, you know, I've been, I played sports and went to college in Florida. So I just had that calling. So I said, hey, Phil, I'm on my way. So again, there's been so many good people in my life that have opened doors for me. That's why I wholeheartedly repay that every chance I get. So there's a gal in that club. It's a South Florida Schutzen Club, another powerhouse. There was a gal in that club named Robin Holly. She gave me a room to rent. She let me set up kennels in her barn. Phil was feeding me protection work, pet jobs, and like it was just an easy transition. Down in South Florida, now getting into early 2000s, it was the opposite of what I experienced in Connecticut. There was a shit ton of openings where they couldn't find qualified people. So I always had my, I, my sights set on the Davy Police Department, which was right outside borders Fort Lauderdale. And uh, some of those dudes down there were, were, were just about it. Like the first Malawas that were brought into the country back then were, were down in South Florida. They had fucking eaters and hunters, bro. It was incredible. And it was a time where you could do the job, man. So there was a guy in the Schutzen Club um, named Marlon Lewis. He was actually like the number two or three guy in the, the management of the town of Davie. And he introduced me to all the canine guys. So 
I was out there catching dogs while my applications being processed, got the job opportunity, got hired, went to the academy. When I was in the academy, it was, it was 2001 when that plane hit the tower. We are in the academy. They pulled out the TVs and were watching that shit go on, man. It was fucking brutal to watch. It was a very, very, you know, insane time in this country. But we never want to go back to 2000, uh, sorry, 9-11. But shit, bring me back to 9-12, right? Bring me back to that day where the, the entire country supported us. And it was an amazing time to be a cop. And, and we could do the job. We had dogs that would do the work. And it was fucking amazing time. So... At the same time, I'm, I'm messing around with some breeding and uh, not knowing shit, just letting strong dogs, you know, bang and see what the puppies <laughs> produce. There was a guy that named uh, Julio Tobar. Um, I think he's with the FBI now, but he worked for an agency called Lauder Hill, which is fucking one of the most dangerous fucking, you know, just horrible, man. So his dog was a fucking beast, bro. The dog was to uh, destroy people on the street. He literally would cut his nose and lips, tracking so deeply on hard surface, like he was an insane creature. So I bred to him to a female that wouldn't bite a biscuit, just a happy little fluffy 45-pound female male, and produced my first police dog named Vader. And uh, I saw Vader born in my living room floor and raised him up and trained him and, and got him deployed on the street, man, and saw him do work on bad guys, bro. Like for me, that's like winning the World Series, man. Like as a behavior geek, just to watch that evolution from first breath to raising, to training, to deploying, fucking that was it for me, bro. So he's a very cool dog and learned so much with him. And uh, I was fortunate enough to watch him take his first breath and he died in my arms at about 14. So crazy time, man. Crazy time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh I couldn't imagine making a dog and watching it work. I mean, that's yeah. almost like a child. Like you, you trained it, you know, he goes to the yeah. Olympics or something and sure. wins. Um, when you first started decoying, was there any kind of fear, trouble? Um, not, not trouble, but like, like when I do it, I'm still kind of nervous mm -hmm. and I've only been in the suit a few times. Sure. I've, I've literally every seminar I've been to, somebody's gotten bit for real. Mm -hmm. And um, so Two-part question, that, the fear part, and um, were, you, were you natural at it? Did you just pick it up right away, or were you kind of clunky at first? Um, you know, I, I, I think I was in an environment where I couldn't fail. You know, I was very receptive to training. Like, my, again, my entire life had been dedicated by accident to just being geeked the fuck out about behavior, whether it's animal or mechanically with playing sports. So it was for me, I was a, a sponge for learning and training. So, again, the, the guys and gals I was around, man, I, I, I couldn't fuck it up. So, and then the dogs I couldn't break. So that, that, those two components, man, was a recipe for success. So, um, I, you know, I ha always have a natural respect for the dogs. And uh, what I see now on social media is these people don't respect the dogs, bro. They're doing all kinds of stunt dumb shit and they've never been fucked up by a dog. They've never seen a human being fucked up by a dog, bro. I've seen people almost left for dead, legit. And we can talk about war stories with bites, bro. But I respect the power in these fucking animals. You know what I mean? So... I'm always very safety cautious. Number one, paramount, the safety of the animal, but also for the decoys, man. And I put a lot of things in place to ensure there's no accidents. I am very fucking confident putting on a fucking hockey helmet for a new guy in a suit or an experienced guy that's in a very compromised position on a building search. Like, I don't fucking take safety for granted, man. I don't, been there, done that. I've been bit in the face a fucking bunch of times. I've dog bit some bad motherfuckers in their face. Like, it's, it's brutal. And I don't want to see those mistakes happen, you know? So... You know, there was that rush and maybe it was the fear and the rush kind of teeter-tottered on each other. But then once you start to learn the animals, you start to learn the techniques, the confidence comes with knowing what, what to do when, learning to read the animal. You can't predict animal behavior, but you start to really understand how to read things. Mm. And uh, they're just an incredible mechanism. The reflexes are fucking incredible, man. So there's always that respect, you know. Yeah, definitely. We'll get into a couple of war stories um, in a little while. But when when... Would you say you got to that, like, you're at the next level? Like, was it, it you went to Napo Post School, right? Yeah, yeah. Was it that? Like, when, when were you like, dude, I got this. I'm super confident in my abilities, and, like, I'm on that next level. I'm not there, bro. I'm not, well, I'm not I, there. Like, <laughs> I appreciate what you're saying, man, but I, I uh, you know, we talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, in law enforcement and police working in life where there's, these people are gifted positions and they have no, no basis for being there, and they, they have this they're so blinded by their ignorance and arrogance that they don't realize they don't have the skill set, and, and they just think they're there. Like, I, I'm never there. I'm not there. Like, I'm here at Joint Forces in Arkansas, and I have the, the blessing to be able to teach, but I'm coming right the fuck back in November to be a student, to mm -hmm. listen to Pat Nolan, to Cameron Ford, and Simon Prince. Like, 
I have this unquenchable thirst for knowledge and learning. I'm, I'm never going to be there. And the reality is for me now, I'm, I'll be 50 here in a couple months, bro. I've been in the suit, you know, 30 years in the sleeves, 30 years, been in some, some bad sports injuries, some real bad fucking car wrecks on duty. And my body's banged the fuck up, man. So <laughs> if I don't put the suit on again, I won't be, won't be mad. <laughs> I like the coach, not catch so much. But I still, I still do enjoy it. But to, really, to go circle back to your question, man, I just, I never had that feeling. There was always more. Like, I remember back in the in the mid '90s, uh, I was able to watch a guy named Jan Cox, who's actually bred my last patrol dog. It was from his kennel, just small world. But um, I watched this fucking dude, little short dude, bro, little stocky, little fucking. Actually, not even that stocky, bro. Just a wiry, bro. The way he handled these fucking monster dogs, how he would drive them, catch them in the escape, spin back into a fucking drive, bro, like matrix shit bro like blown the fuck away so i would see that and i'd be mind blown and i'd dedicate i'd do some mimicry i'd copycat that shit and then try to figure out the theory and the mechanics and then got very interested in kmpv and then in new england there was some good ring sports shit going on so watching the decoys work that matrix shit and making the dogs eskeeve in french ring was mind-blowing to me so trying to you know adapt those theories and systems i never never got there I never plateaued, man. Like I'm always trying to climb that ladder, no matter what dimension. So I appreciate what you're saying, but I, I, I guess to answer your question, the short story is that folks started to want it, were asking me about dogs and asking me about decoying. And it's like I woke up one day and, and people were wondering what I think about dogs. I don't know how the fuck that happened, <laughs> but it's just here we are. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of that, that pursuit, man, ongoing pursuit. From basic to advanced training, Joint Forces Canine offers Arkansas's best dog training services. Whether you want to get your pet up to speed on basic obedience or are looking for more advanced training such as specific odor detection, personal protection, competition and trial prep, service dog training, and more, the professionals at Joint Forces Canine will help your dog become the best that it can be. Joint Forces Canine is veteran-owned and offers all levels of training for pets and working dogs on their 20-acre dog training facility, which includes kennels, an indoor training arena, a pro shop, technical ponds, a trial field, and an agility course. Contact us today for more information and a free evaluation. You can also learn about our boarding, grooming, and working dog sales. Joint Forces Canine www.jointforcescanine.com or call 479-802-0775 jointforcescanine.com 479-802-0775 yeah and that's that's good that's a good way to be because you see the you we see the people that think that they're the end-all be-all they've been doing the same fucking thing for 30 years or they've been doing it for 30 years but they've been doing the same thing for 30 years and i i totally agree with you about being a sponge continuously i think that's that's the proper mindset to, you know, for somebody that I want to be around anyways. But, um, and I'm not like, not like adopting this characteristic to sound fucking cool. Like I have ADD, bro. Like I'm not ADHD bad, bro. Like if shit gets normalized and predictable, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like I'm out onto the next motherfucker. Like dogs have never, ever been that way for that's me. A good point. So that that's why that's the attraction. And then of course we add technology, which I'm a tech jinx. Like I have, I'm very, very non-fluent with it, but you add, the, the e-collar systems and the ability to video and, and break down what we're doing. Like it just opens up massive dimensions of that never ending infinite learning curve, you know? Yeah. Um, you, so we brought up the technology. Um, so you've been, you've been in long enough that you've seen it before the technology and the old school hard, you know, crank and yank method mm-hmm. to, to now. Um, what was the progression like uh, in your world when technology started becoming available and actually usable and better? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it came from that world, man. We had Tritronics brick back in the day. It looked like a fucking old VCR hanging around the dog's neck with a Joe Weider belt fucking strapped in. Like, it was a big, giant brick. They had color-coded plugs. Like, you had to tackle the fucking dog, get the collar off, switch the color plugs, put it back on. And then after all this bullshit, you say, fuck it. It's going to work on the highest levels of, of e-collar. You had to change the prongs to get different levels? Yep. You had to, well, it was actually, the prongs, the contact points stayed, but there was a plug. Like a, like a fuse or yeah, like a, exactly, a relay. Exactly, yeah. a fuse. And they were color-coded based on their intensity. Oh Imagine the shit show. Like, the timing sucked. I'm so spoiled. <laughs> no, no, we have. Martin systems. Yes, like. exactly. It's, it's gold. So, you know, for me, the change, I guess, had to be the early experience with the, with the IGP clubs. It was still little bit of a pressure on pressure off system but the factoring in of a reward system and the first i remember remember like it was yesterday a guy named john rodriguez who's one of the top trainers in the fucking world but he's just not such a people person not so much on 
at all on social media. Man, I, I walked into that club and I saw him fucking healing with a dog breaking his fucking neck to give eye contact and casting his legs out and his tail was up like a scorpion. I'm like, whoa, this is on another fucking level, man. Like, I've been making dogs do shit mm -hmm. and then paying him a little bit on the after the fact. And we had what we call a Nipopo active submission. Like, the dog's in the behavior. He's correct. He's compliant. But they don't have that, that heart and soul they're working with where the fucking eyes are burning, the tail's up, the ears are up, and they're just, like, about to erupt. I had the dogs are in position, tails tucked, ears flat, and it sucked. Yeah, they're robotic, like they're doing it because you're making them do exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. And that, that was a turning point for me that there was another way, you know? And then fast forward the tape to getting around guys like Bart, which I only, I'd see him on Learberg videos of his, you know, Belgian ring competitions and just fucking mind blown about the, you know, we see how the level that PSA is at now, and it's just unbelievable, the level of training and, and competition that's out there, but a lot of that has been developed from the old MVBK shit that we used to see on Learberg. And, you know, before we were connected on social media 30 years ago, there was no platform. So you had to know somebody that knew somebody with an accent that was willing to come over from the pond, over across the pond and show you how fucked up you were. And you had to belong to that secret tribe, you know, and, but now it's just so wide open. So I think I met Bart in 2006 and uh, it was just fucking eye opening, man. It was before it was called Nipopo. And he was doing the weekend seminars. We, we brought him over to Florida and man, just another level. And, and, uh, I was a cop at that point too. And, you know, Bart's always got that appreciation for working with law enforcement military. So him and I clicked real well. Um, we had a dog that was from some agency in uh, Miami. I can't remember what he had him on the flex pole. I was decoying the dog zigged zag, got fucking hogtied in the flex pole, end up snapping a fucking canine. And it was in that moment where Bart and I worked together to unfuck that situation without even speaking. Like we had a connection in that moment and the way it was handled and the way the dog came out successfully. And that was where we kind of clicked and then been a massive fan of him since that. I, I look at him as my, my biggest mentor. And then I think, I think it was 2014 or 15 is when I was able to go to the Nepo post school and really take a fucking deep dive into it. And you know, as, as cops and, and dog trainers, we're usually type A people that want instant fucking results, man. I, I took a good year and change to wrap my head around that system before I would even talk about it. I see folks that go through silver, they jump into gold, and they're doing webinars the next day. Impossible, bro. Like, it's such a deep, vast, vast system that you, it takes time to put your hands on dogs in the system, fuck it up, reboot, try again, and it's deep. And it's, it's evolving as we speak. It's a deep system. Could you just, I know not to contradict or I don't even if I'm using the right word, but could you just like real quick kind of caveman version of <laughs> yeah. kind of like for a knuckle dragger like me? It's, it's a lot of things folks are doing already, but it puts it in a, in a way that we can digest and absorb. And it, a lot of it, there's an old Nipopo system and there's a new Nipo, Nipo, sorry, new <laughs> Nipopo system. So we look at the old system, it's more luring. Mm. Um, and of course, fading those lures out where the new system, again, just a Breeders Digest version is more uh, free shaping. And I am from both schools. I absolutely use the new system to, to empower the animal, to understand they can manipulate us to give them the things that they need and create that, those brain games where you're really tapping into a deep learning process of self-discovery where the dog works through the fringes of their ability on frustration. And then when they get to that frustrating point and they finally hit the target, it's that deep aha moment. So there's about the, the empowerment of the animal, creating what we call ignition, the deep desire to do, creating an environment where the animal is um, self-discovering and learning, being empowered. But the biggest part, there's many different dimensions and parts of the system. The, the, my favorite part of Nipopo is the preparation of preparing the dog for the day they do receive high-level corrections, preparing them for stick hits, preparing them for, for, for conflict. And it's, we've seen a lot of folks here that are putting things into play too, like uh, Cody had the dog on the suit, the dog's biting, that he has a decoy, give a couple little taps on the prong, the dog fires into the suit, the prong goes away. Like you're preparing the dog for that stimulating feeling to dive deeper into behavior. With e-collar training, there's a lot of big disputes with some of the top trainers about charging electronic stem. That's why I want to make my e-collar gas pedal to do as an activator, not brakes to stop him from doing things. It'll absolutely be brakes in some part in the system. We can use the tool as an aversive control, but it's, it's empowering the animal to build them, to prepare them for the day they receive that. So I want the dog to receive correction 
I do not want him to die. <laughs> I want him to go actually higher in drive and in behavior, but dive into that targeted behavior that we wanted him to do, like with power and heart and soul. So if these dogs are just getting corrected, we're not preparing them to show them the answers, how to get out of that correction, but also as an activator to do, not just breaks, that's where the dogs are looking in that active submission role, you know? So it's about teaching that we, we have several buzzwords and, and one of them is dogs working with heart and soul. Like we want the dogs, you see, like you see dogs working in certain tasks where it almost looks like it's just like the dog's so passionate about the behavior, but so clear, whether it's detection or it's tracking or it's healing. It's, it's just that, 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 that system that really produces that clarity and that, that power, but the dogs are under stimulus control. Sorry, the plastic tape. No problem. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I'm super interested in learning that. Are you going to be doing any kind of NAPO post seminars or like, do you, is there some person that you could direct, you know, me to if you could? Absolutely, man. So some of the top guys and gals are out there doing it. Pat Stewart's one for sure. Patrick Lockett. I could rattle off a lot of them, but for me, I'm out there teaching it for sure. Um, I usually do two-day seminars, so I'm packing like what it is right now. And it's about to change. So I'll give you the old version and I'll tell you how it's going to evolve. So it used to be silver school was all theory, all classroom, no dogs, nine to five, 40 hours. You're sitting in the chair, absorbing the system. There's daily practice tests, building you up to the final day where there's a hundred question tests where you have to get 90 or better. They don't give that shit away. It's not easy, but you're absolutely prepared with the material. You pass silver, you go home, you put it into motion with your dogs. You come back a few months later, and then you apply it to the gold school, which is all hands-on. So you then go from the classroom to the field and show everything you've been doing. If you get the stamp of approval, you're then a NEPO post-certified gold student, which gives you the ability to speak about the system, to go teach it, to promote it. It's a copyrighted system, so you got to use their, their language and be trademarked to do it, and they will absolutely promote you to do it. So we're out there teaching it. Now there's, I believe, two or three more gold, gold schools through the remainder of this year. Then effective in 2023, the system's going to change. Well, it's, it's, it's still going to be available, but Bart and Michael are going to do a conference-style class like a HITS or a Blue Line conference with several hundred students. I believe it'll be a three-day class for silver. When you pass silver, then the gold is delegated to the gold graduates to teach. So there may be folks like... You know, I have my strengths in some parts of training and other folks do as well. So they may want to know something about agility. You know, it's not my thing. Or I do train service dogs, but there's another gal, uh, Victoria down in Florida, that has applied Nipopo to her. What's her last name? Stillwell? Warful? War, okay. War, maybe. Uh, Warful, I think that's her last name. And she's applied. So maybe someone has an aspiration of learning more service dogs. So you can find the gold student that's in their niche and go, go in that direction which is an amazing opportunity for us, you know, to provide more training and have opportunities to, that's you know, cool. yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge deal. So was there a lot of bite work in the, uh, NAPO post schools? For sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a big part of it. Okay. Yeah. So it's all things dogs, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever your application is, you can apply NAPO po to it. Cool. That's awesome. Um, let's see here before one more, one or two more dog questions and we'll talk closing out with some cop talk. Um, what are your thoughts on like Germany and uh, other countries in Europe and I think Australia banning uh, prong collars and electric collars and those type of tools? Well, the reality of it is, is that they're putting the dogs in more in harm's way more. Mm -hmm. You know, we have we hear stories about even domestic uh, military units that can only use choke chains. It's the, the brutality that a choke chain has to give the dog in order to comply ah. because the, the tactile communication to the brain of a choke chain sends a much different signal. Like I'm dying. Well, not just that, but it's opposition reflex. Like it's a mm. go signal. Mm. The harder you crank, it's more of a go, go, go for the dog. Mm. Where the pinch collar or the electronic collar can send a different neurological message to the dog's brain with way less damage, physical damage and intrusiveness to the animal. So it's just, for me, it's total fucking ignorance, but all these people, they're, they're still using the fucking tools, but they're just doing it on the down low. And then, or the folks that are abiding by the stupid fucking laws are, are using brutal methods on the other tools. Like we saw a video come out, and I think it was some, it was either police unit or military unit in Europe, I think Germany, of them whooping the fucking dog with a bamboo stick to get him out. Like that's what they're forcing. Like you can't control these animals without, without pressure. Like it's the fur moms 
and fur dads that try to put these laws into play that, that not, aren't dealing with these types of animals. So, can you see it like watering down the, the the genetics of these dogs because they're not people aren't going to be able to control them as much, so they're going to start making weaker dogs. Is that like a possible byproduct of that? Uh, maybe not so much that, but I think the the what will happen is it'll go bye bye. Yeah, the biting sports and you know big dogs being used. If, and we've talked about it before, like. If we go through another two years and another four years of what we see here in this administration, it's over. Like just like New Jersey, you cannot use a dog to bite anymore. Police dog. It's crazy. It's it's gonna fucking happen. It's it's a strategic effort to destroy this country and it's working. Yeah. They're they're doing a good job at it. Uh, it sucks, man. Yeah. It sucks. But sorry to uh we're just kinda on a constraint time constraint here. Yep. I, I could sit here and talk to you for hours <laughs> and I don't wanna be I'm gonna be fair to all the other students and stuff. So I appreciate it, man. Probably got about eight more minutes. That way we're not pushing them. But um, uh, to switch it up, um, could you tell uh, our l- listeners a funny cop story, like a really funny cop story and a really scary cop story that you saw, encountered, witnessed? You know, there's so much shit that goes on on the street, bro, that's, that's fucking comedy. But one kind of stupid story was uh, in, uh, down in Hollywood, Florida, which actually my wife was a cop for, for many years. Um, it was a Krispy Kreme, Krispy Kreme truck doing a delivery at a gas station, right? <laughs> fucking dude carjacks the Krispy Kreme guy, right? Fucking so then he goes northbound through Hollywood, through Fort Lauderdale into Palm Beach. But by the time, this is back where we could fucking chase. It was about 15 fucking police cars chasing a donut fucking truck, bro. And it was like completely feeding that fucking stereotype. Oh. They end up getting fucking murdered by, you know, they got dog bit pretty good. So but that's just a funny fucking, you have a Krispy yeah. Kreme truck with a fucking gravy train behind them, <laughs> cops trying to get donuts. So. Only in Florida, man. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I was born and raised in Clearwater, Florida. Oh, okay. I don't really like to advertise that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I had my Florida man experiences too. Um, and then uh, a scary uh, situation. It's you, you talk about Florida, bro. Like people think like people from New York are crazy. Like LA is off the chain, true, man, but people are fucked up in Florida. Like I don't watch TV, but my wife will watch those crime drama shows like, uh, like Dateline or some other shit like that, bro. Like dudes eating the heads off babies. It's always Florida. It's all, <laughs> bro, it's, every fucking crime show goes back to Florida. Like it's something with the ultraviolet rays, bro. It's gotta be, it's a fucked up deal. So, you know, scary situation for me, man, was, was definitely the shooting I was involved with, man. It's, um, it was a suicide by cop call. Mm. It was the dude chose that day to go. And, uh, he wrote a note, how he was going to do it. Um, his mother was calling 911. You know, he was on the background screaming, hurry the fuck up. I'm going to get here and you're going to kill you. You're going to kill me. Like he was saying all the words, man, to, for that day. And, um, you know, just to back up, as we were talking about guns at lunch, man, like I, I suck at shooting, bro. Like my old man was a fucking Wall Street type of dude. Never shot a gun until I got in the academy. They, they handed me right-handed shit. I said, okay, because I write right-handed. And then I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Learned I was left-eye dominant. Switched over to left hand. It was a little bit better, but still not fucking great. And I was just never into it, bro. Like I was, just, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to say that I was, I'm not a gun guy. So during certifications or during training at the range, I was fucking annoyed, bro. Like I was never into it. I'd miss paper during qualifications sometimes, <laughs> man. It was embarrassing, but, but fortunately I was able to, to hit, hit, hit target when I needed to. So the thing about me is that I teach a lot of folks in training about visualization. And I go back to that eccentric coach in high school. He taught me visualization, which simply means that you can rehearse a range of motion and exercise a task in your brain while your body's relaxed, not engaged physically in that task, but you're rehearsing it over and over in your brain and you're training muscle memory without even moving. And I, and I, because I'm an obsessive fuck about the things that I do, I would do that naturally about dog training, about sports. And I also did it about police work. So Got into police work to work a dog, but I was addicted to the streets, bro. The hustle, the pursuit, the fucking hunt, like the, the, just the game of the dope game and how these criminals fucking operate. It was fascinating to me, bro. So I was, did you, I, would, I would have done it for free. I was in early. I'd go home late. And I would fucking, I would visualize situations and scenarios in my brain. Like I pull over this car, dude gets out and fucking rushes me with an AK. What do I do? Like physically, what the fuck do I run him over with my fucking car? Do I get out and exchange rounds? Like, what do I do? And I would do it on dog bites on tracks. Like I would rehearse scenarios like a madman. I saw this moment in my life before it ever happened. Like it's crazy. It was like an out of body experience, bro. I can't even articulate it. So it took me about 20 minutes to get there. We have a huge County. Mm-hmm. And so the, the guys were holding it. They were way down. They were parked about a half mile away. And the mother's like, where, where is everybody? Get here, get here. So they're waiting for the dog. 
we made our approach. Um, my dog's a bit of an asshole, so we had the shield. We had our less lethal. We had our lethal options, long guns. And I always had my dog off to the side of the stick because he's a fucking douchebag. You know, uh-huh. he's just not that type of dog. So the guy's sitting in a lawn chair with his legs crossed, and he's got his arms folded over his waist in a very unnatural kind of position. I never saw the knife. The mother's saying he's got a knife. He's saying, you know, in the background, he's going to fucking kill us. So he's sitting in this long chair that was out of place, a completely staged scenario. Like he wanted to. So it was a rural environment, real dark. There was a couple street lights down the road that gave some ambient light. And of course, we had our flashlights and shit. So I'm trying to make contact with him. There's, you know, in law enforcement, especially in Canine, where I worked, we could work our whole career and never see the same guy twice because we'd travel district to district. Mm. We were full time canine and we'd travel to districts and maybe not know who the fuck we're dealing with. So small team tactics are out the window. So a lot of new faces. So I would always try to, to kind of take the lead. I tried to establish contact with him. I was talking to him by his first name because we had all his information. Wasn't complying. He gets up and starts walking away from the house. And, and it's, again, a rural environment. He goes out of his driveway, steps over a little bush, and goes into the neighbor's yard. And just to kind of give you a stupid backstory, like – Law enforcement has shifted so much that if these folks aren't actively trying to kill themselves or other people, we let them be. We've gone into calls where dudes are shooting up their house and we fucking go, we walk away. I went to a call several months before this where a dude had, had two samurai swords. He came out of his house and he's approaching us. They made us back up and get in our cars and leave. This was a zero lot line. We left this fucking maniac with two samurai fucking swords and he was lit. So hand, police work is hands off. They look for every reason to not engage. So anyway, so this dude goes walking away. And I'm like, fuck, here we go. This is going to be an all-nighter. So I broke from the stick, and then I went to go cover the front door of the house. I did not want him getting back into the house. You know, then it's a whole other barricaded subject. So we had him out in the free world. So he's walking away from the house. For whatever fucking reason, the protocol changed. They blasted this fucking dude in the back with a 40 millimeter round, you know, less lethal round. It's like a 120 mile an hour fastball yeah. and usually it's incapacitating for most people so as soon as i heard that shit go off he hits the ground now we own him so then i left my spot by the front house and now i start my dog sees this going on he's fucking low threshold twitchy bitch so i had a really fucking bad habit like don't ever talk to me about tactics bro you'll throw the fuck up like i'm not your guy i push the envelope on a lot of shit and i'm not i'm, I'm not that guy i'm here to live to talk about it but so I, again, I'm left hand. I shoot left hand. I had a really fucking bad habit of holding the leash in my left and my flashlight in my right. Mm. So I'm advancing. Once this guy hits the ground, it fucking enrages him, bro. So once they blast him, I start making my approach towards him. He's probably 30 yards away from me at this point. He hits the ground. He fucking goes ballistic. He's screaming like a fuck. He was making noise, like subhuman noises, bro. Like fucking crazy. Screaming, yelling. He fucking starts running straight towards me. I think they hit him again or he tripped and fell. But as he's running, bro, I can see that fucking knife now. Now he, because as he was walking away from me, he took it out of his waistband. Bro, that motherfucker looked like a crocodile Dundee fucking, like an axe, bro. It looked larger than life. And this dude was covering ground like a fucking Olympian. So my dog's going batshit. I see him fucking charging. That knife looks fucking larger than life. I drop my flashlight, transition leash from left to right, unholster. And again, mind you, I'm on the move and my dog's pulling me and jumping and I fucking just start spraying and praying. And mind you, I missed paper and fucking training, right? So I'm not the best shot. So the dude goes, it's, again, it's dark. I dump my magazine. He, he goes to the ground. Well, he falls. He starts spinning. So he's right-handed. When he, he starts to spin and fall, when he lands on the ground, I see that the, he had separated from the knife. I could see the knife, like the light, the ambient light. I could see the knife tumbling out of his hand. Like the world, for me, like I talk about that fucking shitty upbringing, bro. Like violence was normalcy for me. Like the world slows the fuck down. Like it's really fucking weird sensation. So it's like I'm seeing these, this shit happen in slow motion. The knife comes out of his fucking hand and he starts to spin. The last round when I saw the ME's office caught him like in the side and the back, but the first three were in the chest. So I hit him four out of eight times. I shot eight times. Again, no idea if I hit him. He goes to the ground. He's still flopping around. So he's separated from the knife. So I holster, give him an announcement. Let me see your hands. No response, but he's still ambulatory on the ground. So I send the dog. My, my intention was, again, I would never deploy the dog on an armed suspect if I know he's armed. 
Now that he's separated from the knife, my intention was to set the hook with the dog, keep him online, and drag him away from where I believe the knife fell. Because, again, I don't know if I fucking hit him. He's still flopping around on the fucking ground. So that little hedge that he stepped over, I'm now right in front of the hedge, and he's right on the other side of it, right? So no compliance. I holster. I send the dog. He jumps over the hedge. His feet hit the ground, and he slides out like his feet kind of trip a little bit. And the dude's now his, his, uh, his right hand and right shoulder are facing me, right? Because he spun when I shot. He's running at me. He spun, so his arm is facing me. The dog skips off like this nylon windbreaker he's wearing and fucking mugs him across his face. Mm. One canine on one side of the temple, other side, another canine, bro. Fucking full grip on this dude's face. Mm. Brutal. And that he literally took his last breath, like when the dog fucking hit him. So, you know... I get to the, I go over that little bush. I secure the dog. I can tell that he's dead. Just because I'm, as I take the dog off with his dominant collar, he's a very quick release in the dominant. Just during that exchange, there was no life left in the guy. I take the dog off. I back away. I see the knife laying about where I thought it was. I send it. I call the deputies in to handcuff him anyway. And I turn around and the dude's mother watched the whole fucking thing, bro. Uh. Just fucking brutal uh. just f- for a mother to have to watch that i mean the dude chose it like but just to go back to like the visualization bro it was a fucking like as i parked way down the road bro, like half a mile away i'm as i'm walking back to my car with a dog like like thinking like what the fuck just happened bro it was a complete out-of-body experience my body went in complete autopilot you know what i'm saying like it, training it, the, tra- the visualization and, and part of me, like, bro, and I, I get, like, kind of, like, teared up, like, just being so proud of that fucking animal. Like, mm. I, I talk for, we remove, like, the brutality and the loss of life side, right? And, and the whole, the way the call went down. We look at it from a behavior standpoint with a dog, because that's another dog I had my hands on since he was eight weeks old. And for him to fucking take those rounds, like, bro, right between his ears, <laughs> And to not fucking blink. Wow. And to go in there and handle business. Mm. Like, bro, like, that's awesome. Again, winning the world fucking series. And like, I, yeah, he ate steak that night. Nice. <laughs> you know, like, so, <laughs> hell yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I hate to cut this off, man. But, I appreciate you know, the we, opportunity. Can we do bro. a, can we do a episode two? Anytime, Sometimes. bro. Anytime, awesome. Man. We'll do it remotely, right you on. know, whatever. But, yeah. um, in, uh, yeah, we're about out of time, guys. Sorry to do this to you. I know this was a, a super awesome conversation. So, um, any closing tidbits before we hop off? No, man, I'm just, I'm accessible. You find me on social media, bro. Like I, my phone, I'm a little bit fucked up with technology. Like sometimes I don't see the DMS or PMs. So just hit me up, bro. I'm happy to help in any capacity I can. I don't have all the fucking answers, but again, I'm, I'm compelled to pay it, pay it forward as, as many people have done for me. So this, this dog world's a wide open thing. It gets very, uh, tainted with the fucking egos and the insecurities and the fucking drama. And then, just kind of try and see through all that to the end goal is the success of the dog, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to tell everybody what your, how to, what your info is? In yeah. Your, in your so, business? um, on Instagram, I'm, uh, I have two pages. The uh, canine service unlimited is a, is a business handle. My personal handle is J rig canine. Um, same thing. A personal name, Justin Rigney on Facebook. And then the business page canine services unlimited plus canine service unlimited.com. So cool. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And sorry, we'll definitely, definitely continue this at some point. Thank you for the opportunity, man. You as well. See you. Thank you for tuning in to the Dogs of War.